following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome to those of you online and those here in the building. We appreciate your participation this morning. We were uh, studying last time in the Doctrine of the Atonement. I had a question about that uh, over the last week, and I wanted to touch on that and then get into some other things related to it. Um, Some of you have been taught, and maybe were taken a little bit aback by uh, my statement uh, last week, you've been taught that atonement means merely covering, and I addressed that last week, the theological idea of atonement, which has a number of words in the Bible speak to that topic, but the theological idea is not merely a covering over or hiding or concealing. Uh, There's more to it than that. And so the question that I received this week had to do with that uh, subject. And when uh, this person was looking at their uh, Strong's Concordance and Dictionary, they saw that the word that is used in Hebrew often in the Old Testament for this is kafar or kafer, and one of the definitions means to cover. And so immediately that got their attention and said, hey, you know, I mean, what is pastor saying? It doesn't mean covering, but it is to cover. But that's only one of the definitions, and so that launched me into a whole thing about, okay, how do you, how do you properly use the tools that are uh, available at your disposal, in this case a dictionary, uh, to understand the scriptures better? And so yesterday with the men and men's prayer meeting, I went over uh, the seemingly basic study of how to use a dictionary, and I had joked with them that this was going back to fourth grade, and, uh, but really it's... It's more than that, because in fourth grade, you didn't learn about the fact that words have semantic ranges and that only one of those meanings that a dictionary might give you, you know, you have a dictionary and it gives you one, two, three, four different meanings for a word. Only one of those fits properly in any given context because the context bounds the meaning of the word. And so you can't just say, uh, well, I saw the definition to cover in the dictionary, and so that must be what it is, because there's also the definition to pacify, to make propitiation, to appease, uh, to expiate, to purge, remove, um, and so on. And so the use of the dictionary is not just uh, you know pick and choose what you find there in the dictionary. It's kind of obvious, but you have to be careful about that. Um, And I I alluded to a uh, verse in Genesis chapter 6 in my answer to this questioner, and I mentioned it yesterday as well, in which the scripture uses this verb, kafar, to cover and to pacify and appease and propitiate. It uses it when God tells uh, Noah, you're to build an ark and you're to cover it with pitch or bitumen some kind of tar, basically, to seal it, to help it be water-resistant, at least, or waterproof. So the verb can mean to cover, but it can also mean a number of other things. Complicating the matter further is that when we use the word atonement in English, in theology and Christian doctrine, it's come to mean 
more than just what its particular uses mean in certain verses of the Bible, but it is used theologically to refer to the whole big idea of salvation. So the word has, can I say, adapted or changed or expanded over the years of Christian theology to refer to the large idea. So we might just talk about the atonement of Christ. And that means like the whole work of Christ. You with me? Your brain's tracking? Yeah, it's good. So we have the kind of the specific word meanings in the Bible, and then you have this meaning of the word which encompasses a lot of other ideas. And that's how I'm using the term in my study here when I talk about the doctrine of the cross, the doctrine of the atonement, I could just as well call it. And in that way, I'm using the term to refer to things like the problems that we have in sin. I mean, what is the problem? It is a problem, right? And then and, and kind, of div, kind of breaking that down and thinking about the, the nature of that problem. And then what are the solutions to that problem? And so that's how I'm using the word atonement in a very big and, and general way. But let me go back to this idea of covering just for a little bit more. Why is it the case that the word atonement cannot just mean cover in the, uh, in the, in the Bible, in the, in the Old Testament? It's an attractive idea to say that it means a covering, and here's why. Because if you're in tune with Scripture, you're saying, okay, there was something kind of wrong with the Old Testament sacrificial system wasn't complete. It wasn't good enough. God had to send Christ. And so if you think, okay, well, maybe those sacrifices in the Old Testament were merely a covering and the sacrifice of Christ was the real thing. And so you make that dis- kind of easy distinction in your mind and you say, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's good. It's covering in the Old Testament. It's something more in the New Testament. But I don't think it can only mean covering because the idea in the Old Testament is much stronger than covering. Remember last week, I think we used this verse, Leviticus 4.20, and Leviticus 5.10 also does the same thing. Actually, since we didn't look at Leviticus 5.10, we can turn there. Uh, We looked at it yesterday in the men's prayer meeting, but not uh, in this context last week. In Leviticus 5.10, we're speaking here about the trespass offering, and it says, And he shall offer the second uh, as a burnt offering according to the prescribed manner. Uh, And this this is actually the uh, two pigeons or turtle doves segment of the offering. Okay, so here's somebody who's not super well off. Uh, They're bringing not a lamb, but rather the two birds for the offering, and says, So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed, and listen, and it shall be forgiven him. So if you just take a too simple version of of the, the idea of covering and you compare it to Hebrews 10, you might think the people in the Old Testament weren't forgiven for their sins. But this text says they were forgiven, weren't they? Now, were they forgiven for all of their sins, for all time, legally, judicially, in Christ? I wouldn't say that because 
this animal sacrifice didn't offer a complete, finished, final sacrifice for sin. Okay, But it does say, doesn't it, that atonement is made and it shall be forgiven him. So think of this. Put yourself in the place of a of an Israelite uh, 3,000, 3,500 years ago, and um, you've sinned, and you come to the temple or the tabernacle, in this case, the altar. You offer your lamb or your two pigeons or turtle doves, and uh, you know that you've done wrong. You have done the ritual as specified. Maybe if it's a lamb, you've put your hand on the head of that lamb, and it has been killed or those birds have been killed, uh, picturing substitution, aren't they? Substitution. They died instead of you dying. And the blood is shed. The ritual is completed. The priest has made atonement for you. You have followed the instructions, and it says you walk away forgiven. You've been bothered in your conscience about that sin, you know that you did wrong and you needed to make it right with the, 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 the state, if you will, and with the theocracy, with God, the leader of the kingdom. And you've done that, and the Bible says, and it shall be forgiven him. Can you imagine you're walking away with a feeling of relief? Oh, thank the Lord I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven from that particular sin. There's something real that happens there. It's not like the person walked away and said, well, I'm glad that's covered over. <laughs> it's more than that. There's a real, a real forgiveness. And the reason, another reason why this has to be more than just a covering is because this stuff that we read in the Old Testament is the basis for the New Testament idea of atonement. As incomplete and piecemeal as it was, it is the teaching instrument that God used to do what? To bring us, us meaning the human race and Israel in particular, into a state of understanding the need for atonement, the need for substitution, the need for the death of a sacrifice for them. And so thus for 1,500 years, and actually more than that, for all of the history up from Adam and Eve and Noah and Moses and all of this, Abraham, did I say Abraham, all of these guys, God is teaching the need for substitution. He's teaching the need for somebody to die for sins. So uh, this is the basis of the New Testament teaching. And so it's not just empty, it's, it's real. Some, some real purgation happens with the sacrifice, so sin is removed, and that particular sin is no longer a basis of disharmony between God uh, there is a uh, real purification that happens in this. Uh, think of Psalm 51.7. Do you remember that verse? Psalm 51.7. Wash me. You know the song better than you know the verse probably, just like I do, right? <laughs> yeah. Purge me, wash me. Well, let's read it since we admit that we're not as familiar with it as maybe we should be. This is the great penitential prayer of David after he is exposed in his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. 
God, he's praying to God, have mercy upon me according to your loving kindness and your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions. That's verse 3. Um, and then verse 7, uh, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And so there was a sense in which the confession and forgiveness and the work of going to the temple was a real cleansing kind of act. Was it finally and completely cleansing? Hebrews 10 is very clear it's not. So there is a big difference, but it's not the difference of merely downplaying the atonement in the Old Testament. We need to play that how it is. And then on top of that, recognize the distinction that Hebrews 10 adds to it. If you think of Leviticus chapter 16 as well, this is a very, uh, if you were a worshiper in Israel at this time, a faithful worshiper, and you were sensitive about the sin of yourself and the nation, the Day of Atonement, which is outlined in Leviticus 16, it's all about the Day of Atonement, is a very poignant kind of reminder of this. And in the Day of Atonement, ritual that is prescribed, the high priest has a number of things to do that day, you recall, and one of them has to do with two goats. And it says in Leviticus 16, verse 20, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Okay, I think we've already dealt with the uh, one that was going to die here. Um, can't remember which verse that is, but you can find it back there, a couple, few verses back. Then it says, verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Oh, that goat. You're a worshiper watching the Day of Atonement ritual, and you're watching that goat, and all of the sins are laid upon that goat, symbolically transferred to that goat, really transferred in God's sight because that's what the ritual signifies. And that goat is sent off into the wilderness, probably miles away. It's the scapegoat, isn't it? And it pictures the sin of the nation and the individuals being removed from them as far as, you know the rest of that verse, Psalm 103, 10 through 12, as far as the east is from the west. It signifies that God is casting the iniquities of the nation into the depths of the sea, Micah 7, 19. He's removing them from him. So this atonement and this day of atonement is really significant. Guilt is transferred and it's, and it's removed, pictured as removed in the ritual. Now, the problem is, two, well, two, there's at least a couple of problems, and Hebrews exposes these. It says, look, the high priest could only do this how many times a year? Once, one day. And only one day a year and only one person could do this. 
And then it says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin because there's always a consciousness of sins over and over and over again. It's repetitive. And so that's what the shortcoming is or a couple of the shortcomings of the atonement as it was operative in the Old Testament. Okay, so we learned yesterday in the men's prayer meeting, use those dictionaries carefully. Don't just pick any definition. You know, you've got to get the contextually correct one. And we looked at some of this stuff about the atonement uh, to see that it is a real thing and significant in the life of the, uh, of the believers at that time. So now we turn back to our doctrine of the uh, study of the cross and pick up where we left off last time. Um, if you're taking notes, uh, these are available on the website. I updated them again, and they are there available on the uh, docs section of the website if you want to look those up. There's about 13 or 14 pages now and a study guide at the end for some of the material that we used last week. But we looked at the problems solved by the cross, the problems of sin solved by the cross. And uh, the first one is the wrath of God. Okay, God is got a, a, a constitutional reaction to sin. It's just innate in him to react against violations of his holy character. This causes us to have also enmity with God. Uh, we've seen that, gone over that a couple of times. We're also in bondage to sin. That's number three. Then we had uh, also guilt. We're guilty before God because of our sin. It's not an emotion, remember. It's a, an objective state. So we have that guilt. And then we also mentioned death. We have the problem of death, physical death, spiritual death. Okay? So then we looked at the idea of the atonement, the general idea that it describes all the stuff that Christ did for sinners to solve this very difficult problem of sin. And the cross is that solution for wrath, enmity, bondage, guilt, and death. So a number of weeks ago, we looked at the solution for wrath, which is what word, what theological word represents the solution for the wrath of God? The word is propitiation, which means satisfaction. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. Uh, What exactly is the propitiation for our sins? Well, that's a bad question because it's not a what, it's a who. Uh, The satisfaction for our sins, it says in 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Our works are not propitiatory for our sins. Uh, Any other thing, it's him. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's where our hope lies in Christ, why it lies exclusively there. Then there's the second solution to the problems of sin, one, wrath, propitiation, then enmity. Enmity, if you're at enmity with someone, what do you need to be towards them? reconciled, and that's the solution for the enmity that we exist in. If we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son and so on, uh, God is busy about reconciling not only individuals, but the world to himself. And then we didn't, I don't think we touched this one last time. This is redemption or ransom, okay, and it is the release Redemption is the release from the bondage of sin. And so often, uh, a way to remember that, it's often expressed that redemption is like being purchased out of a slavery market. So you can 
think about your U.S. history and slave markets and people being bought and sold on those markets. But this is a spiritual redemption, okay? And uh, that's we always labor to make sure that people know that. We're not talking about political oppression and those sorts of things here. Redemption and ransom talks about spiritual realities. So uh, John uh, 8.34 reminds us that I say to you, Jesus uh, said most assuredly, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And John 8.36 says, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free truly, free indeed. And then Titus 2.14, which we just looked at recently, says, who gave himself for us to do what? that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a special or peculiar people zealous for good works. So the idea of redemption is to pay the price of a slave and therefore to release him from his bondage and slavery. It is the answer to slavery to sin. The Bible speaks of redemption and ransom in a bunch of different places. One of them, Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, I don't, I guess I don't really deal with this here in these notes, and I'm just thinking now if I was sitting at my computer, I'd probably type another paragraph on this, but let me just say this. Do you realize as a blood-bought sinner, if you're in Christ, you are no longer enslaved to sin? Sometimes that's hard to grasp if you're young in the faith or if you're really struggling with an addictive kind of sin. Uh, you say, man, I'm enslaved to this. Well, in a sense, maybe. But that slavery has been, that, that bondage has been broken if you're in Christ. It's, you have a new master now. Uh, Jim Berg likened it to uh, having a new landlord and the old landlord comes knocking on your door and says, pay up. And you say, no, I, I don't owe you anything anymore. I'm not, you're not my landlord. I pay the new guy, not you. you know? my, I'm a servant to righteousness now. I'm not a servant to sin, so get lost. You have the power to do that as a believer, whereas before, you really didn't. Before you were in Christ, you really didn't have that power. So don't think that Whatever the besetting sin is that you struggle with, you know, from uh, anger to uh, whatever the sin that starts with Z is, okay, you figure it out. From A to Z, whatever those things are that trouble you, don't think that you're powerless if you're a believer in Christ. You're not. Now, in redemption, there are four main ideas. First of all, you have the redeemed person, a former slave, Okay, so that's you, that's me. John 8, 34, you're a slave, you were a slave of sin. Then you have the redeemer. Okay, so you have you, and then you have the person who redeems you. Also a person, Job nineteen twenty five. I know that my redeemer lives. And I will see him. From the standpoint of my flesh in that last day, this is a great testimony of an early testimony that's a little maybe cryptic, but it's of, of resurrection and redemption. You know, Job, is he knows he's going to die, but he says, I'm going to see him again. 
in my flesh. That's a remarkable thing that from probably 2,000 years before Christ, the doctrine of resurrection was, was recognized. So you have the Redeemer. There's a whole book in the Bible that is focused on a Redeemer. Which book is that? What's that? Yeah, Kinsman Redeemer. Yes, I think somebody has the idea. The little four-chapter book of Ruth. And Boaz is the Redeemer. He's a great picture of Christ in that way. He, he rescued Ruth and Naomi from a state of need, a state of uh, being um, without a protector, a provider, uh, a property owner, manager, a name to propagate the name of their family. Uh, it's to us, this is always marvelous. It's always a, kind of an amazing thing to me how, how much cultural change there's taken place from that time until this time. But, you know, for, uh, for people who are in the situation of Naomi and Ruth, it was not an easy life. You know, there wasn't welfare. There, weren't, uh, there wasn't the SNAP program, food stamps, you know, bridge cards, all that sort of stuff. This was a hard, hard life and um, dangerous, too, dangerous, too. I read a story early, uh, I think earlier today, about a woman who was uh, married uh, to an Afghani, I think, but they were in Afghanistan, American woman. She's still trapped there cannot get out. Uh, she found that she was married earlier in the summer, and they're pregnant now, and uh, she was, her husband said, look, you need to go. Just leave. Leave me here. You get on the plane. And uh, she revealed that she was expecting and said, I can't go without my husband. And uh, I don't know what all the details were, but they were at the airport many times trying to get on the plane, and they never got through. And the Officials didn't do their job, and it's a debacle. It's more than a debacle. But here this woman is saying, I need and my child needs a father. I need a husband. That's this, this book of Ruth that we're talking about here. Naomi is concerned. Ruth finds a redeemer, a protector, a provider. And so Boaz is that in Ruth chapters, well, really two through four. So you have the redeemed person who needs the redemption, you have the redeemer, and then you have the ransom that is paid. That's the third item on the or third concept under redemption. The ransom paid. In this case, the ransom paid is what? What's that? Jesus' blood. Jesus uh, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What did he give as a ransom? His life. He gave his life. And so when we think of redemption and ransom, it's, sometimes it's uh, uh, tempting to think in terms of money. You know, I give money and I get the slave. But God didn't give money. And sometimes people say that the ransom was paid to the devil. So, you know, God owed him to get us free. No, that's, that's wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. The payment of life was made by a member of the triune God to satisfy a member of the triune God. That's incredible. 
when you think about it. Deep, deep thinking, deep doctrine there. Uh, the ransom is a life. Ephesians 1.7 says we have redemption through his blood. It's not a financial payment or an equal amount of money as in ransom money. Rather, the ransom is a moral or ethical payment made to satisfy the wrath of our infinitely holy God against sin. That was the price. That was the ransom. So we have to think in terms of ethical ideas, ethical terms. This is what Christ did, paid the life for us. By the way, it just occurs to me, why am I, do, why am I saying all of this? You know this, but it's necessary for us to review it, I think. And also, this should help us to praise our God because of what he has done. You think about, I mean, you just think, oh, the atonement. Okay, go on to the next thing, you know. Uh, what's on the news? No, stop and think. Wrath, enmity, bondage, guilt, death, life, sin, you know, ransoms, all of this stuff. This is what God did for you. So you have the Redeemer, the redeemed person, you have the ransom, and then fourthly, you have the result. The result is we are not only loosed from the enslaving power of sin, we're also released from the guilt of sin, and we become the property of another. Okay? Now, when I say property of another, I, again, don't want us to think in terms of just merely financial terms, although it's a helpful illustration if you don't carry it too far. But it is true if you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Verse number 19, Paul arguing there we should not be involved in immorality, sexual immorality, because that's a joining of two together. And he says, look, your body doesn't belong to yourself. You are not your own. You belong to another. You've been bought with a price, again, an ethical price, a moral price, not a monetary price. So you are belonging to another. And I think this exposes then or kind of as an entry point into the whole doctrine of what does it mean, uh, what does sanctification mean, and what does it mean that Christ is our Lord? If we belong to another, we don't belong to ourselves. He is our master. He is our Lord, okay? And it's troubling to me when people try to make that an optional aspect of salvation, very troubling. It is not optional. It's built in to the package, Part of the package. Uh, some passages speak of release from the law and the curse of the law. We need to be careful about these passages because we're not under the dispensation of the law today. Gentiles today have never been under the ruling authority of the law of Moses, have they? However, all are subject to the moral law of God, which we call the law of Christ. It specifies Death for violations, doesn't it? It does, you say? Well, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is... <laughs> death is specified as a wage in the New Testament. God doesn't become soft all of a sudden in the New Testament. Like, oh, there, there, it's okay, don't worry. <laughs> no, sin still has a very stiff penalty, regardless of the testament in which you live old or new. Even a single violation, James 2.10 says, if you've broken one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. Boy, that's a strict standard. So in a sense, there's really not a whole lot of difference if you're under the law of Moses or under the law of Christ. I mean, we're guilty. 
all of this points me to the fact that we should never stop thanking God for the blessing of being released from the tyranny of sin. Being released from the tyranny of sin. And also it gives us a level of humility too when we think of and speak to and interact with other people that are not Christians. Why? Because they're enslaved. They're in darkness. They're alienated from the life of God and all those descriptions that the Bible uses. And so you know that it's a, it's a sad and difficult situation for them. It's not something we look down on others and say, aha, I've gotten the, the enlightenment. No, it's like I, somebody helped me escape from slavery. Can I help you escape from slavery? You know, can I be, uh, can I be uh, Harriet Tubman for you? Can I be your Moses? Can I help you to escape the slavery of sin? Well, we're running out of time here. We talked about the removal of guilt and forgiveness last time. Um, we also discussed, well, we didn't discuss this. I have a little note here. We didn't get to this part yet. I was, I was addressing or going to address also the, the solution of the problem of death. The cross of Christ solves the problem of death because the Lord himself submitted to death in order that he might conquer it. In taking the penalty of sin upon himself, he took away the reasons that people have to die. The reason is the guilt and associated punishment, God's wrath against sin and, and all of that. And I just I have a couple of verses here that just kind of ponder on. Um, and then I still did not get to the doctrine of substitution today, so we'll have to save that for another time. But think of these verses that have to do with life. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. 2 Timothy 1.10, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 4, it says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Romans 5, 21, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John three sixteen. You know the verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not have death, have perish, but have everlasting life. John 5, let me see, am I repeating myself here? No, I'm not. John 5, 24. I was asking that because I'm saying, man, it's everywhere in the Bible. You find there's six or seven verses right here. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's what's happened to you if you're a Christian, passed out of death and into life. So uh, the atonement, what is this now, Brother Kyle? Part three or four or what? Part four, okay, he's helping me track because he's uh, 
processing the audio and, and uh, putting it on the website. So yeah, this would be part four of the atonement. And we still have to do with um, the doctrine of substitution, which is a marvelous truth. We've already touched on it, obviously, but just want to detail it a little bit more. We'll have to do that another time. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the teaching of the scriptures in the area of the atonement. This big, wide-ranging word that covers so much, uh, our problem of sin and the solutions for that problem. We love you, God, and thank you for your loving kindness to us. We bless your name because you have loosed us from sin. You have released us from guilt and bondage, redeemed us, cleansed us, called us your children, and all these other things that we looked at. God, may you be pleased with our response to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.